Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and today's guest is Ed Greffenstedt. Ed is the head of machine learning at Cohere and an honorary professor at University College London. He previously held research scientist positions at Facebook AI Research and DeepMind following a stint as co-founder and CTO of Dark Blue Labs. Before his time in industry, Ed worked at Oxford's Department of Computer Science as a lecturer and Fulford Junior Research Fellow at Somerville College. Ed also received his MSc and DPhil from Oxford's Computer Science Department. I found it really fun to go through Ed's career trajectory, starting from his academic days during his PhD, coming off of doing a bachelor's in physics and philosophy, and the unique background that gave him, to his time at some of the largest research labs at DeepMind and FAIR, and now to a startup, Cohere, that is building tools for developers to use large language models. As always, if you're not already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And without further ado, Ed Greffenstedt. So, Ed, you've worked across, I guess, a number of different places in academia and industry. And you also, I guess, in my personal view, have probably one of the most interesting backgrounds of somebody I've seen in the AI space. I'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story. What got you interested in AI in the first place? And how did that story roll out? I love the term origin story because it really makes it sound like I'm some sort of superhero that got bit by an AI spider or something like that. Um, I guess it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very, uh, there's a the very long version of this, but we, I know we have other questions to get through, so I'll, I'll try and keep it re- reasonably dense. So um, in part, I've, I had an early exposure to artificial intelligence because I have several members of my family who've worked in this field. Uh, my father, uh, Gregory Greffenstedt, worked on cross-language information retrieval and vector-based um, models of meaning for his doctoral work um, at the University of Pittsburgh. And my uncle John worked on genetic algorithms um, back in the early days of genetic, not, and then not so early, but early in, in, in today's sort of like framework and days of genetic algorithms research and has worked on um, machine learning applied to public health since. Um, so I'd love to say that, you know, I've been sort of following in family footsteps, but I, I realized the sort of work that they both did after I started my PhD in computer science, which makes me both a bad son and a bad, a bad nephew. So my, <laughs> my, my foray into AI has been uh, maybe subconsciously prompted by those connections, but it was more a, a personal journey. So uh, as you um, know from my background, I, I started in physics and philosophy, um, and those were, you know, subjects that interested me because as, as a teenager, I was like, I'm going to want to, I want to do both of those things so I can understand the physical side of the world and the metaphysical side of the world. And obviously that now, now I say that out loud, it sounds like a whole lot of BS. Um, 
But <laughs> when I was doing my, my um, first year um, philosophy uh, courses, uh, I got really interested in, in philosophy of mind uh, and aspects surrounding consciousness or whether it, or not it exists. And simultaneously um, started watching the series of movies, Ghost in the Shell um, by Masamu Nishiro, uh, which touch upon a number of philosophical questions, but also uh, talk about artificial intelligence and the sort of like cyberpunk, uh, you know, dystopian future aesthetic that uh, I quite like in, in my fiction, but not in my reality. And so I think that sort of like intersection and the fact that re- realizing that philosophy is really hard made me start thinking a lot about wouldn't it be nice if machines could do some of the thinking for us or at least help us disentangle the sort of web of implications that seems to underpin um, a lot of philosophical problems. So that was probably the, the sort of first, so having to, what having that desiderata and also studying sort of probably an older version of artificial intelligence via the topic of philosophy of mind were my, my entry points into that. It's only a number of years later when I had done, uh, I finished a master's in philosophy after my undergraduate work, I'd focused there mostly on philosophy of mathematics, but with some philosophy of language, I realized that um, you know, we're, we're finding a job as a philosopher is, is quite hard. You need to be extremely good and uh, <laughs> to, to, to get through the, the gauntlet of PhD and then academic selection. And I was at best mediocre as a philosopher. Um, so I thought, okay, well, what, what, what around philosophy uh, interests me that, that could be perhaps more employable? I hadn't done any computer science at this point, but more or less on a whim towards the end of my master's, in philosophy at St. Andrews, I applied for a, a sort of conversion master's at the University of Oxford um, to sort of just get into computer science, having done a little bit of programming as part of my physics education. And I guess there I got really hooked. I mean, I got really lucky in the sense that I had some wonderful mentors and professors there. Uh, but most importantly, towards the end of my master's in computer science, um, there was funding from the research council that had been obtained by Professor uh, Bob Kuka and his colleagues at, at, in the quantum group in Oxford to work on something at the intersection of um, some pretty abstract mathematics, um, some sort of fairly abstract physics and language. And there were very few people on the market who had an interest in, in language, a background in physics, and some experience with abstract uh, algebra. So I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting project. And, and that that's really, that sounds like a really strange actual concrete starting point for the journey into artificial intelligence. But the three years and change I spent uh, on that project on trying to reconcile the stru- syntactic structure of language and the semantics of language led me into like applying neural networks towards the end of that and towards and during my, my postdoctoral work. Um, to natural language uh, understanding at a time where very few people in the world were working on that. It was pretty much a, a few of us in Oxford, Chris Manning's group in Stanford with Richard Soker, who uh, I met when we were, I guess, in the sort of middle of our PhDs, um, and uh, and a few other people here and there, but it was a very small field. So that that was a really exciting sort of transition wholeheartedly into realizing that neural networks were such a, a powerful kind of tool for uh, dealing with language understanding and eventually a whole host of other things. So I'll stop, I'll stop my answer there, but that, that, that was the very circuitous path that took me at least to the beginning of my AI journey. There's a lot in there. And I do recall when reading some of your papers from your PhD time, just how 
um, different it felt from a lot of the the NLP papers I've read. And so there was definitely a little bit of an experience there of just kind of getting used to things, having to remember some stuff from abstract algebra myself to kind of grok what was going on there. Let's discuss a little bit about some of the papers you were working on um, during and I guess after your PhD. So there are quite a few on distributional semantics in particular. Um, some of the ones I looked at were experimental support for a categorical compositional distributional model of meaning. Perhaps we can start with that one. And for a place to begin, I feel like that title for some less NLP inclined listeners might sound just a little bit intimidating. So maybe we can begin by breaking that one down. Okay, that's a great place a great place to start. And I think that's a, a nice way to put it. I think it might just sound like nonsense to most people these days. Um, I should specify there's a lot of, I haven't continued that much on this um, specific agenda since writing my doctoral work, but um, Bob sure. Kuka and colleagues have, have and, and have produced fantastic work. Um, so maybe like to break this down, let's talk about the different, let's start, talk about the, the, the motivation for this work. So um, at the time where I started, this doctoral work, there were, you know, there's two kind of like clashing perspectives of um, how to analyze language. Uh, one is a, a syntax driven one where you're saying, okay, well, look, you have um, an obvious structure to language. We have different ways of characterizing that structure, like context-free grammars, uh, dependency grammars, um, and we can write parsers that allow us to infer what the underlying st structure of observed sentences are. And a lot of people have worked actually since the 50s um, on ways of trying to um, use that structure to uh, also characterize the semantics of language. So the work of Richard Montague was very uh, influential in this space where he said, like, imagine that words are building blocks of the overall meaning of the sentence. And this is not a new idea. It goes back to Frege's uh, concept of compositionality, um, which has been visited by many other philosophers and linguists. But you said, imagine the words are the words are the building blocks, as in they're 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 parts of a logical expression, and the syntax tells us how to combine them. And so you have this kind of two stage framework where you use the syntax to guide how the components were combined, and then um, you'd at the result of that have a logical expression that expresses you know the logical form of Mary loves John, right, based on its syntactic form and the, the particular types of the parts. Um, and this is this is nice if you believe that um, the true semantics of natural language is the underlying logical form, an idea that again goes back to people like Leibniz and, and the earlier work of Wittgenstein. Now, I wasn't a big fan of that kind of idea, and I was quite interested in this other view of semantics, um, which uh, was referred to as distributional semantics, which you'll see here in the title, the distributional. Um, so this idea goes back to um, people like Harris uh, or Firth or Wittgenstein, uh, and I would encompass like the 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 the, the, the uh, core notion of these approaches as um, you'll understand language by understanding how to use it. Specifically, the Harrisian notion of uh, distributional semantics is that you can understand the meaning of words by looking at um, the other words that are used around them. They're, they're a significant characteristic of like the semantics. And this is fairly intuitive, right? If I'm talking about uh, banks in the sense of like a financial bank, then the language I use around it significantly disambiguates the, the, that it's not a river bank and furthermore tells us that if even if that word was not present 
in the sentence that the missing word probably has something to do with financial institutions because we're talking about money, we're talking about counters, we're talking about sticking up. And so that's a joke. We shouldn't we shouldn't uh, rob a bank, but, <laughs> you know. But like, yeah, the word you can you can we're, we're good at guessing that precisely because of this distributional phenomenon. So that in in computer science led to this um, notion of distributional semantics, where we would build representation of words simply by looking at the frequency of the co-occurrence statistics with other words. And this is kind of a precursor to models like Word2Vec and pretty much the embeddings we see, the word embeddings we know and love today, where instead of looking at co-occurrence frequencies, these are implicitly modeled at a higher, more abstract level through the neural networks and the extrinsic task that, that the networks act over. But the earlier version of this was simply saying, okay, words are vectors, and it would be nice if we had some way to go from words to sentences. So mishmashing these, both of these ideas together was an appealing sort of project, right? Saying, why don't we take this sort of Montagovian view that, you know, the syntax of language tells us how to combine things, um, and this distributional view, which says words are vectors, and it would be nice if we could, uh, could get a sentence vector out of it. So the characterization of this work um, behind this paper and a number of my other early papers um, following a seminal paper by um, Kuka, Clark, and Setters a day was simply saying, let's espouse a mathematical framework that was used for uh, modeling quantum information flow, because why the, why the heck not, <laughs> and adapt it to um, solving this kind of like uh, intersection of Montagovian semantics and distributional semantics. Let's use the syntax of the sentence as given by you know a parse tree and the vectors of the words uh, to define functions that combine the vectors into a sentence vector. So this experimental support paper of categorical, so that's the mathematical framework from quantum information theory, compositional, which means putting words together and getting a sentence representation, distributional, meaning that the components are vectors, models of meaning is self-explanatory, was the first sort of experimental test that this could be, we could build those functions and we could apply them to what looked like by 2011 standards, a plausible real-world task, and by today's standards, completely toy. I want to eke out the view that some of this work might impart in terms of how we construct the meaning of sentences versus words. So one thing that our listeners might have heard a lot of is that basic distributional hypothesis. You know the meaning of a word by a company it keeps. And a question that I asked a previous uh, interviewee as well, who had worked on developing phrasal sentence level vectors was about how, when you start to view things at the phrase level, at the sentence level, how that complicates something like the distributional hypothesis. And I'm curious if the work you've done on some of these questions, constructing representations at the sentence level, um, how you think that this whether there's an analog of the distributional hypothesis, how that kind of complicates when you start to um, look at phrases, at sentences as well. Yeah, so the, um, there is definitely an analog or a generalization of it, and that's the work, later work of Wittgenstein, which I used to sort of characterize this whole line of thinking at the word level. It also applies at the, at the phrase, sentence, and you know general level, which is that meaning is used, right? That the semantics of language are in large part indistinguishable from their pragmatics by how we use them. And that there's a, a sort of category error in thinking of language just as like a medium, as a sort of imperfect vehicle for 
you know, it, it, the language of the mind. I, I, I reject that view and saying that language is, is actually um, the part of the message. It's, it's a tool. It's, uh, it's an essential part of our life and our, our way of operating it. And to analyze language is also to understand that broader context, like where we're using it, why we're using it, to what end, to what end, what our goals or desires. And so this motivated me to do two things across the last 10 years. And first is to move away from um, the doctoral work I focused on to um, work on a class of uh, methods that were uh, more scalable, but also gave greater freedom to incorporate information from non-linguistic channels or from you know uh, other parts of um, the environment than just the, the words, right? To capture sort of, you know, conversational context or large document context, things that the methods I did during my doctorate would would, would not scale well to. And eventually I also um, shifted into working uh, on the intersection of reinforcement learning and language precisely because of that notion that to truly understand language, uh, you need to incorporate some aspect of pragmatics, of pragmatic understanding, and it seemed like a sensible place to start to say, let's study how language can both help um, us train more general reinforcement learning agents that are situated that have to act in an environment with a goal. And in turn, how having to study agents within such contexts would lead us to have a better understanding of like the sort of semantics that emerged within um, the uh, quote unquote brains of these agents. The linking between meaning and pragmatics, I think, is really interesting today because even though large language models aren't really accessing language in a grounded sense, at least I think most people would feel that way, it does feel like we are conducting some real-life experiments into how can picking up pragmatic language at a massive scale help models understand meaning, if we are to call it understanding. And I know you have a lot to say about that. Um, and since you mentioned Manning earlier, I know there is some recent work out of his lab in particular showing how models like Embert sort of automatically learn linguistic structure in their data, which I think is a really interesting finding. But I'm curious how you reflect on that and perhaps some of the questions you just highlighted, the pragmatic and meaning link, especially in light of some of the more recent developments we're looking at? Um, I mean, so just to address the first part of that question about um, what about Chris Manning's work, and there, there's work, I think, even back in the day of LSTM, a whole like five or so years ago, <laughs> the, the, the heyday of LSTMs uh, on precisely that. So there's been, there have been a number um, of studies like probing whether or not you can recover something akin to uh, you know, parse trees into, uh, or whether implicitly like these models that don't explicitly condition on tree structure, like recover something like tree structure or dependency graphs. I find that, you know, intellectually fascinating. And I think that there are practical uses for it. It's not an area I specialize in, so I don't have a particularly strong opinion about how useful it is, but, um, I, I, I have a lot of respect for that line of work. The, but the second point is, is about whether or not we need to probe whether or not these lang these models have pragmatics or some understanding pragmatics inside them. And you're, you're right, they're being trained predominantly on just, you know, just modeling the next word on, on modeling the statistics of, of the, the corpus during the pre-training phase. Um, and this is, so this is a question that we asked ourselves in a 
uh, work we've done with uh, one of my students, uh, Laura Reese and Akbir Khan, uh, in collaboration with uh, Stella Biederman and um, Sarah Hooker and Tim Rockdashel, um, which we put out a few months ago. The title of the paper is changing, but effectively asking, uh, are large language models good zero-shot communicators? Can they understand communication rather than just language? And as part of communication, can they understand pragmatics? So what this paper sought to examine is whether or not large language models could resolve simple implicature tasks, which is a fairly trivial but ubiquitous form of uh, pragmatics that um, exists in our language. And so to give uh, your listeners a, a simple example of this, imagine that we are working in an office that's not open plan. It's hard to imagine, I know, <laughs> in today's day and age. But um, And you come and say, Ed, can I borrow your stapler? And I'm like, well, my office is unlocked. Um, that statement doesn't seem like it actually answers your question on a logical level, right? On a sort of like first order interpretation. But fairly naturally, you'd, you'd understand from that, that A, the stapler's in my office. B, you have permission to get my stapler and C, you know, like that's where this, you know, the, the, there, there's no other obstacle. You should just do it now. You know, you can, I'm, I'm, formula, I'm, I'm both answering your question, giving you all the information you require uh, and also proposing a plan for you almost. And it's astounding that like, we understand that, very casually without really thinking about it and and we very naturally almost and it's very difficult to <laughs> to go through a day without using implicatures of some format conversational conventional like several times per conversation so they're, they're just an integral part of how we communicate in an effective and dense way so we came up with an experiment um, that uh, was based on a psychological study um, that produced a data set testing whether or not um, uh, particular individuals had trouble understanding implicature or not. And we turned it into a binary classification task that allowed us without further training to just see whether models can sort of capture this. And we noticed a very interesting result is first that if we if we take just the class of general models, so the models that are just trained to model the, the statistics of the corpus, so GPT-3 as it was initially proposed, coheres based models, OPT, all these models, that they all perform randomly, like and that it doesn't correlate with you know how recent the model was, model size, amount of data, like they all perform randomly on something that is actually quite a simple task. But curiously, when you start looking at OpenAI's Da Vinci models, and now we're looking at other sort of models in a similar class, the models that are trained to follow instructions, you notice that they don't necessarily operate at human performance. And again, I should specify, this is quite a simple task, but they, uh, they, they're, they're performing significantly better than randomly. They're, they're close to human performance if you look at, at, their, at, at how well they're, they're correlating with um, human judgments. And the... Um, hypothesis, I guess, the, the possible explanation there is that when we shift from training models just to model the surface statistics of language, which, as you pointed out, can't possibly just bring in groundedness for free, or if it does, there's some very poor proxy for groundedness in there. But these are not, this is not active language in the context of, you know, some desire, some goal, some negotiation then they don't capture this, this simple pragmatic phenomenon. But when we just fine tune them on relatively little data in some cases to follow uh, instructions, then suddenly, even though none of the training data to the best of our knowledge uh, subsumes the evaluation data we used for this pragmatics benchmark, they do pretty well. 
Like they, they've captured something about pragmatics. And if we test like new examples that we come up with, just in case there was some data pollution, they fairly consistently reflect the accuracy that we saw in our benchmark. So that tells us something about the fact that yes, grounding is probably required to understand language to like get full semantics in line with human performance. But perhaps there are ways of training these models in a way that to have to be able to model the data they're then further trained on, they have to capture something, some proxy for grounding that's sufficient to start to uh, align with pragmatics phenomena and human communication that are that are more human, that are more plausible. So that was a fascinating result um, that, that I'm very grateful for my student to, uh, to deliver um, that really is changing my perception about how we should study large language models. Yeah, I don't know if it goes all the way to giving a full sense of grounding, but it is really interesting just looking at the, I don't know if I call it pervasiveness, but the attention methods like reinforcement learning from human feedback have gained recently. And I think that really does highlight what seems to be a an important factor that human-in-the-loop training seems to play for um I guess, getting these LLMs to behave in a sense that feels more grounded. But I'm curious how, how you feel about that human-in-the-loop aspect of training. Well, so that my, my first reaction was precisely to ask myself, is this uh, due to the RLHF, the reinforcement learning from human feedback aspect of how Instruct GPT and derivative models were trained? Um, and so it turns out that it, that's not really the essential like differentiator here. And how we figured this out is what we were we were evaluating against DaVinci two and the progression for the DaVinci models is DaVinci one is kind of like trained to follow instructions in line with instruct GPT from a supervised perspective. So just gather from humans um, example of uh, examples of instructions and continuations and just supervise. Uh, DaVinci two did the same thing but with a lot more code-based uh, data from, I guess I'm guessing from Codex in the mix and, and DaVinci 3, which uh, at the time where we did the initial experiments would have not been published or released, um, was the first uh, commercial model that uh, had uh, RLHF on top. So the evidence is that most of this sort of proxy for pragmatics in how DaVinci 1 and 2 and models of that instruction following class are trained. Most of it comes from just being trained on a different kind of data, right? It's no longer just, it's still obviously the objective is protect, predict the next token of the completion given the tokens that came before and the completion and the prompt. So the, the modeling objective modulo masking is, is roughly the same, but the nature of the data is is just significantly shifted towards here's you know some ins an instruction perhaps an instruction that also has some contextual data and then the completion is not just what naturally follows according to a natural english speaker but rather or or other languages but most of our data happens unfortunately to be in english but rather here is what will satisfy the sort of implicit demands of the task that is specified in the instruction. So the, 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 the data distribution is inherently goal-directed, even if it's not embodied, even if it's not connected to synchronously to, to, to a, a real-world interaction. And so evidence shows that at least when it comes to resolving these sort of binary conversational implicatures, that that's 
that's a very strong signal. That's, that's, that's astounding. And that tells us a lot about um, how, I, well, not, it doesn't tell us how far we can go with this class of technology, but it tells us there's a lot to be gained from thinking about just what kind of data we throw at them rather than just thinking about more data. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think that the, the data side of training these models I mean, people have already looked at scaling laws and how much data, but as you said, I think that there's been um, not as much focus on constructing the data sets. So I definitely am excited to see follow-on work to yours. Let's perhaps move to some of your other work and um, we can maybe bridge the jumping around we've done time-wise. So you had to work on a convolutional neural network for modeling sentences. Um, which I thought was a pretty interesting paper. You um, included this new development, uh, dynamic K-max pooling, uh, where you observed a problem in this previous model, Max2DNN, and resolved it with this idea. But I'd love for you to introduce perhaps some of the the main ideas in this paper. I mean, so this was, first of all, the, this was the uh, the brainchild and the execution of uh, now Kaspernir, who... Uh, Probably needs no introduction. He's been an extremely successful researcher uh, following this work. Um, you know, probably more success, certainly more successful than me. Um, and he had, I think, this this great vision at this early inflection point where we were like, let's not necessarily focus on mathematically beautiful methods like we were focusing on with these category theory inspired uh, frameworks, but just see have something that scales <laughs> that scales well. Um, and I was along, you know, along for the ride because I, I, I saw it as a plausible sort of like direction to move in. But there were a few interesting contributions there that aren't actually even on the modeling front. Um, the dynamic KMAX pooling is simply, um, I mean, so just to explain the technique here, we adapted convolutional neural networks that were uh, used popularly in vision um, and, uh, you know, applied them to, to natural language understanding tasks. And so that's pretty much the main contribution. Um, Obviously, when you have variable length sentences, you need at some point to uh, pool, to combine all the information into a final vector if you want to classify to do object recognition. So you need to have something that's fixed width at some point if you're going to classify, predict the next word, et cetera. Uh, so that's where the pooling comes in, saying let's take however many vectors we got from our convolutional filters and then uh, combine them by averaging and whatnot. And dynamic K-max pooling was just a technique that said, let's incorporate information about how long the sentence was to dynamically set how we subselect vectors and which ones dominate the representation that we're producing as we aggregate information and then predict. That was a cool mechanism. I don't think there's that much need for it uh, these days. But the 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 vision I think that um, Nal had in this paper, which I think has persisted in the age of the transformer, was... Um, one, that scale mattered a lot more than, you know, the complexity of the network structure. So, you know, just a convolutional network that you just repeat the layers, make it bigger. Um, that, that idea wasn't really pervasive at that point uh, outside of a few sort of groups. Um, and so he just thought we need to prioritize that and, and just see that it works. And it, and it did <laughs> it worked. It worked on, it worked a lot better than anything I was building. And the second was that he, um, was he worked on uh, getting worked hard on to getting this stuff on GPU and there was very little sort of software support for this. Um, I can't remember how he did it, but and and I think as part of that he also did some of the earliest 
work or, or discovered, rediscovered perhaps uh, the application of like fast Fourier transforms to efficiently do these convolutions. Something which I don't even know if you put it in the paper, I can't remember, but the separate papers were written on this technique that as far as I know, he had pioneered uh, or been an early adopter of um, far before any other publications. So this concept that we need to, we, we benefit a lot from scale and from thinking about model architectures that are easy to train, but fit well with our hardware is a large part of the success. Uh, yeah, it's a large part of the success of the transformer architecture. It's, it's a bag of tricks that sort of evolved, <laughs> but what makes transformers so powerful is that they have very nice learning properties. Um, they capture dependencies well and whatnot, but they're just like embarrassingly scalable, like compared to like recurrent neural networks. And that's, I feel that, that, that part of the vision, um, is is what I saw in in in, in Nal's earlier work, and uh, part of me regrets not thinking. Well, you should really double down on this in 2013 <laughs> rather than uh, sort of just watch other people do it with other architectures. But I got too caught up in fancy thinking again. Yeah, I actually I thought this paper was really interesting because I did observe some ideas that seemed to have been fleshed out more in the transformer. So one of the notes that was in that paper was this convolving the same filter with the n-gram at every position in the sentence, um, where you're sort of applying your, your 1D convolution, allows features to be extracted independently of their position in the sentence, which um, I guess when I first read that seemed a bit contrary to ideas like positional embeddings. But then you also um, had this part where you enrich the representation by computing multiple feature maps with different filters applied to the input sentence, which feels something like having you know, uh, different self-attention heads, basically. So I thought it was kind of interesting that there were some some shared ideas, at least on my first read there. Well, so the, I mean, it's not, like you, you do get a lot of information about the positional features just because the convolutional filters move in a way uh, over a topology that reflects the order of the words. So when you're aggregating information, as you move the filter over the first layer, you're, you're looking at the direct neighborhood of the words. And then obviously the receptive field as you go up grows to the entire sentence. But at any point, like the order of the sentence is implicitly there in contrast with, uh, with transformers where you need to provide that explicitly um, or at least more or less explicitly with, um, with positional embeddings. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe we can bridge towards some of your more recent work. And I think the next one I wanted to discuss was teaching machines to read and comprehend. And in this paper, um, one, I think, of the main points was providing this large-scale supervised reading comprehension data set. Um, and I felt this paper might be just an interesting jumping-off point to talk a little bit about the difficulty of constructing supervised learning data sets. Um, and I'm curious if working on this paper gave you any insights into how we could possibly make that easier and just how we should go about developing tasks and data sets for language modeling. Um, yeah, well, that's a, lot, a large number of topics to, to, to branch out there from. So as, yeah, as a reminder, this paper was one of the first uh, neural large-scale uh, reading comprehension approaches. So the idea that we could have uh, a recurrent neural network, which at that point were usually unrolled over, you know, a sentence or two, um, that we could somehow unroll them over uh, a document of up to 2,000 words, um, and in doing so, answer questions about the document. Uh, 
so a large part of that contribution, which I should say was was um, pioneered by my uh, friend and colleague, uh, erstwhile colleague, Karl Moritz Herman, who, who led the project. And a lot of the engineering was done by Thomas Kaczynski, who uh, was his intern at the time at DeepMind. Um, so a large part of the work was was just engineering. Can we get recurrent neural networks to <laughs> operate on a GPU um, at the scale where we're going to be able to get through 2,000 tokens, which... Uh, and tokens at the time were actual words you know, in the original sense of the of the term. Um, so that was that that was a lot of work. And, and then, the, as you point out, the second component was: can we build a data set that will be sufficiently complex to demonstrate the ability of neural networks, but still fit of memory, still be sort of amenable? And that that task was the other half of the work. And a large that 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 sort of like motion of Finding a, a data set that is at the that tries to find or tease out the boundary of the capabilities of our models and demonstrate like you know new capabilities while also being sufficiently complex to highlight failure modes so that the next generation of researchers can do better. Um, that's an important sort of part of science. So one that's been almost too undervalued, at least, well, probably still is undervalued. I think there was this period of excitement between 2014 perhaps still continuing today, that was benchmark-driven development of machine learning models. So a select few in the community built a benchmark, and then everyone sort of like made overcomplicated uh, changes to their, their modeling, um, to their models, to their model architecture, to their inference mechanism in order to get SOTA, which was the, the way you got your free ticket to NeurIPS or to, to ICML and whatnot. And uh, and, and I played that game too. So I'm saying this humorously and cynically, but you know, I was a willing participant <laughs> at, at a time. And it's still valuable to do that, right? It's like, you know, you're still trying to push the limit against that particular benchmark. But I feel like the field definitely overfit that kind of form of innovation far too much between 2014 and 2016, 17, perhaps still overfits it a little too much. Um, and it's only lately where we really settled on the fact that look transformers are just unreasonably effective and people have explored variations of transformers but when you do a proper ablation study when you scale them properly a lot of the improvements go away so we start we've stopped to a certain extent obsessing as much over model architecture we just use you know the same sort of optimizers there's work obviously going on into how to improve those things but we've stopped obsessing over those as much and now uh, the whole field has gone significantly more towards like what sort of new things can we build um, with this by just varying the data because that's where the money is. I mean, if you could, you, I could go through, we can go through a long list of recent NLP companies that have spun out amongst which OpenAI Cohere, Inflection, Adapt, Character. All of these, all of these companies for the language component of their product are, are, are using very similar architectures, very similar ways of training their models there's innovation there too, obviously, but a lot of it is down to like, can you just get the best data? Can you can you get the right data for your product area? And can you build something beautiful with that? So we in our group at the NLP group at DeepMind were big fans of the, the benchmark-driven development of the field, um, and I think it was well recognized enough. I like I would have liked it to be more recognized at the time, but with uh, papers like teaching machines to read and comprehend, like the narrative QA data set, where we we challenged people and still an unsolved challenge to to answer questions that span entire books or entire movie scripts, and sometimes you need to like piece together information from different parts of the script or the book in order to answer the question. Like I think that's an extremely important part. 
So even as we sort of move out of the age where we can devaluate everything that language models are doing right and wrong with benchmarks and real-world application matters more, I think there's still a strong, there's a lot of room for well-designed benchmarks to move the needle of science. And that's what we tried to do with this pragmatics benchmark I mentioned earlier. Yeah, it does feel like there's still, as you said, a lot of a lot of development to be done on the benchmarking side. I think we've touched on some of the ideas I wanted to discuss about your teaching artificial agents to understand language paper um, and a little bit on the reasoning about entailment. But I'd really love to dig into your paper on learning to transduce with unbounded memory, because I feel like that might have some ideas that are a bit more unfamiliar to our readers. I'm not too sure how many listeners are going to be familiar with the neural Turing machine and this sequence. So maybe let's start at the start with all of this. Um, I, I feel like usually having figures is kind of helpful to make sense of, of all of this information. But what do you think people should know about this line of work? Hey, I mean, I, it's a, it was a very exciting time. And so perhaps... Like the, the spoiler alert is that the conclusion that we're going to reach here is that um, is what I just said, which is people are obsessing less about architecture now, and perhaps they should obsess still a little bit more. But we are at a point where we're with the gradient of progress by just getting better data and feeding it to transformers seems to still be paying dividends, and so um, we're, we're in that regime. But rolling back to around 2014. Um, as interest in, in deep neural networks uh, grew, so too grew the desire for them to be more uh, interpretable, more robust, and more general, and so to extrapolate better beyond their training data. And so there was a number. There were a number of um, pieces of work that tried to get at this over maybe the span between 2014 and 2018, um, when this agenda kind of died down a little that tried to say, let's take, you know, things that we actually know as computer scientists, like Turing machines, like pushdown automata, structures that we use to reason about algorithms, about how data is manipulated, where we have a good formal understanding of their properties and expressivity. And can we get neural networks to either directly operate on these structures, on the structures that underpin these models of computation, or can we get the neural networks to behave like the models of computation themselves? Can a uh, neural architecture actually, in the limit, behave really closely and interpretably like a computer, like a Turing machine, like a pushdown automata manipulating a stack? And the the expected payout was that these models would uh, be more efficient with the data since they're not trying to memorize or just capture the shape of the data, but are actually trying to learn something more abstract, like an algorithm, like a set of rules that generalize beyond the training data and so extrapolate better. So there was a lot of work um, out of uh, two groups, uh, probably at the beginning of 2014. Uh, one was um, uh, Alex Graves and colleagues at DeepMind, and the other was um, Jason Weston and Antoine Bord, who had just joined. Um, Facebook's and then new uh, Blue Sky Research Lab, Facebook AI Research, on um, can we get networks to sort of like operate on a memory, right? Um, and so these two papers were memory networks from the FAIR group, uh, which I guess was in some sense a precursor to attention uh, since you needed to observe or indicate to the network which in, in your supervised data, which memory slot was being sort of addressed rather than that be latent or soft. And the other paper was um, the neural Turing machines 
um, paper by Alex Graves and co at DeepMind, and then successor paper, which I worked on differentiable neural computers, which we published uh, in uh, Nature in 2015 or 16, I think. Uh, and yeah, these, uh, like, like it says on the 10, uh, these were architectures, the, the actual sort of shape and organization of the neural networks was extremely complex relative to the sort of stuff we see today, where we, you know, have uh, transformer blocks that we just, you know, paste across and then like copy with different parameters to add depth, right? These were like highly specific, you know, there were read heads, write heads, there was a block of addressable memory, and there were mechanisms for how these different components interacted that were supposed to be semi, there were continuous relaxations, meaning that they still had to be differentiable, but that, you know, if you really turn the temperature um, up or down. I never remember. Um, <laughs> if you, in the limit, started to look at like discrete operations on a memory or on another kind of data structure. Um, and so it, it almost seems intuitive that if you train them enough and you got the training just right, that out would pop out something that you could actually run on, an, on a discrete data structure like a Turing machine and interpret it and study it. And that this would be an exciting new phase uh, where we would study, um, you know, <laughs> artificial intelligence differently. We would get neural networks to produce uh, formal, verifiable uh, machines. We would benefit from the interplay between the sort of like symbol manipulation world and uh, the neural world, and everything would be great, and AGI would pop out of it. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I worked on differentiable neural computers, and this um, learning to transduce with un unbounded memory was... Um, sort of orthogonal contribution to that. So I think everyone who's programmed a little is familiar with the notion of the stack. It's a data structure where, you know, you push in, da you push in data and then you can pop it out and it pops out and the, the, the last data you pushed in is the first that pops out. So you can capture like nested information through this and the number of algorithm exploit stacks. And so this was basically saying, could we produce a neural version of a stack when that, you know, is, is differentiable so that we can learn by gradient descent uh, how to train a controller to operate on it and then use that to learn algorithms, fairly simple algorithms like reversing strings, copying strings, like modeling nested dependencies like you would in a grammar. Um, and it worked fantastically well. It was, uh, I should specify that this was, you know, while the experiments were novel and the way in which that kind of architecture was produced was like many things, in uh, deep neural networks standing on the shoulders of giants. So um, standing, in my case, on the shoulders of uh, work by Sun and Das from the early 90s. For once, it wasn't Jürgen Schmidt-Huber. Um, but I, I, did, I, did, I did obviously acknowledge this in the paper and cite them uh, appropriately. So yeah, and, and it worked well. Like you, could, you, you, you would train it on sequences of particular lengths. You'd observe that very large you know, LSTM-powered networks would start to have a failure mode when you were out of distribution, when you tried to copy longer sequences or copy longer or deeper nested sequences than had been seen in the training data, but that these you know, neural pushdown automata and, and related kind of models would, um, would work quite well, would extrapolate. Um, so there was a lot of excitement as I said, to wrap this up uh, around 2014 to 2016, I think when it came to scaling these methods to the real world, to like more sophisticated tasks where we didn't know what the algorithm were, where the data didn't necessarily invite a very algorithmic or rule-based interpretation, that the, the, the more complex rules that you'd want to induce from that data just would never emerge. So the systems would not perform in a way that was sufficiently different or in any way different from uh, just scaling your, your LSTM networks or eventually your transformers and because they were a lot more expensive to run and train. Well, why, why bother, right? When you could just scale our networks that 
are a lot easier to train, a lot easier to scale and fit our hardware better. Mm. Before we move on from this paper, one aspect I'd love to discuss was in this talk you gave at the Alan Turing Institute, you kind of expounded on how RNNs relate to the models of computation we're familiar with. And you made the argument that in the hierarchy, they lie closer to finite state machines that don't necessarily have access to unbounded memory than to Turing machines. And uh, at the point you gave this talk, I think attention was kind of already a thing. And you referred to it as a read-only memory. The follow-up question I'd have there is, how you think the introduction of transformers has affected where things lie on that computational hierarchy. I guess my intuition is they still don't have that like ability to write to memory. Context length is a well-known problem. There've been interesting ideas like transformer Excel, but I'm curious how you think about the introduction of transformers um, in terms of that computational hierarchy question. That's an interesting question to ask, specifically because I had one of my my students, Minchi Jiang, sent me a paper just the other day on this topic. Um, it's called uh, "Looped Transformers as Programmable Computers" um, by Angeliki Jianu and and colleagues. Um, That's on my list. I haven't read it yet, so uh, yeah. So, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna appropriately summarize it, but the just uh, my my indirect summary via my student, which is how I consume most papers these days, um, is that they're demonstrating that transformers can act as sort of general purpose computers that you can reflect, you can actually encode particular algorithms in that, so that in the expression space of the the um, the parameters that you can set there is um, the whole the whole space of like what we want to put them in them as, if, we, if we're treating them as, as black box computers. Um, so I think the, the, that's a very interesting result. I'm not going to pretend to know more on it since I haven't read the paper yet. But looping back to this idea, I think it's precise, it's part of it is because transformers move beyond the notion of attention as... Uh, read-only memory. So the, the, that comment pertained to when we were doing sequence-to-sequence modeling, where you had you, know, you had a sequence, you wrote like your your sentence in French, and you would you wanted to transduce it into English, and the attention was a way of like forming soft alignments between the next word you're going to translate and the possible candidate words or sets of words in the source sentence that you're going to translate. So, so you're literally just looking at some data and then trying to you know write it differently, write something different based on it. Whereas in transformers. Right. Um, the what what does the attention? So the three components, which this was a separation invented before transformers, but I think it's a powerful notion of the query, the key, and the vector are all produced by the previous sort of like information and in the previous layer of the transformer. So as you go up through the depth of the through, through the the depth of the transformer through the height, as you always illustrate it as going up towards the heavens. You know the the abstractions that the previous layer sort of encodes are determining you know what you're looking for, how to look for it, and then what you're trying to find amongst that information next. Um, so content uh, find like the content and the retrieval mechanism are all implicitly controlled by the transformer. So it's a very expressive architecture. I think that it is it is I can see why <laughs> this result came out that you can express extremely powerful or unboundedly um, sort of powerful uh, up to Turing complete um, programs within them. You have definitely moved that looped transformer paper way higher on my list of things to read next. So. That, that's, that's without that's without having read it. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I was I was pretty excited to see the the pre announcement for that one. Um, 
I think at this point, I'd love to move on to your current work at Cohere. I suspect a lot of people listening at least know vaguely about what Cohere is. Some might be more intimately familiar, but it'd be great if you could do sort of the intro for somebody who might have heard of Cohere, but doesn't know much about it. And then I'd love to hear what made you join Cohere. Yeah, of course, I can tell you about that. So Cohere is a um, platform company for uh, large language models and more generically sort of like language modern language technology, contemporary language technology. And so the idea is we, we train models, um, embedding models uh, and, and generative models, and we serve them to customers by APIs that, um, you know, allow them to obviously embed and generate things that people who are in the know <laughs> of how these models work will readily recognize as ways of interacting with them. But increasingly, we are um, we, we're building uh, endpoints that behave that encode more abstractions over how to use them that are supposed to make them more accessible to people who don't have strong intuitions about how to prompt a model to do behavior x or to don't know what to do with an embedding but know that they want to search at scale so um there's going to be a pretty steady stream of announcements of new endpoints in the coming weeks and months um uh coming from cohere but our general view our general aim is to a have the best language models on the planet and we're um, we're getting there. OpenAI has a pretty big head start, but I think um, we're uh, quickly, quickly catching up. And B, to beyond that, make it accessible to developers, be it individual hackers, uh, people within uh, large industries who want to you know, give computers language, who want to bring these capabilities into their jobs, into their pet projects, into um, their, their the sort of processes that they're building as a until perhaps to build an entire company on the basis of this technology and to make that aspect accessible, accessible from an engineering perspective, since we train the models for you, we help you fine tune them if you want to customize them and we serve them. So you know hardware needed on your end, but also conceptual accessibility where we build reusable building blocks that you can then compose without necessarily needing to have been a co-author on the transformers or Lambda paper. But you wanted to know why I joined. <laughs> so the there's a, a few reasons. The first is that um, I, I met the founders and um, they're they're a, a young trio, um, but they're really insp inspiring people. At a time where I've, I'm pretty open about my you know slight distaste for some aspects of Silicon Valley sort of hustle culture and and some very notable figures in Silicon Valley who are extremely ego driven. And so I was just very impressed with how. The, both the vision, but also the fact that the sort of attitude of these founders who are not ego-driven, who are just very smart information sponges. They listen to their leader, the, their leadership team. They listen to their board, listen to their employees and tr are trying to just build something that will move the dial in how we give computers language. So that was, that was part of it. Why I came on the market when I was comfortably, I guess, working at Facebook is, is separate from Cohere, but connected was the, the, the release of this technology within Google that they, then published, but I had early information about, about I guess, um, of this chatbot called uh, Google Lambda. And so today everyone's talking about GPT-3, sorry, about ChatGPT, which is uh, a great a great marketing moment, a well-delivered product and a stunning sort of tool to use. But in a sense, Google sort of gave away this fantastic head start. Like over a summer ago, they had produced conversational agents that could, you know, search the web and incorporate the search in um, how they, they they follow the conversation, both returning search results if needed as justification, but um, 
also, you know, just being able to loop over web pages until they've reasoned enough to be able to answer fairly complex queries. And they did this without really changing anything about the architecture or about like, or using reinforcement learning, doing anything fancy. It was all down to like collecting data in a clever way and training on it in a nice structured way. And I thought that was such a beautiful paradigm. It was like, it was a moment where it was like, this technology has reached a point where it's no longer just, you know, I can build some cool sort of like reasoning task with GPT-3, but like I could imagine building a whole world of products. So that got me very excited about the the, the potential that I saw the field moving into. And, um, and, and as I was talking about earlier with Nal's paper, maybe I didn't move as fast as I should have. <laughs> but uh, that I was like, I have to like be part of this. And so Cohere was a natural match. Uh, I liked the vision the founders had. I liked the sort of culture of the company and the, the, the desire to bring um, more sort of like sophisticated the capabilities of large language models like conversational search, like being able to search documents, um, be it like different kinds of files, images, uh, text and under the same interface, like that really meshed with me. And I could see that as a place where I could build my own vision of um, how uh, how we could make these 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 models useful tools. Are there any particular commercial applications or ways that you're already seeing people use these models in their businesses that are exciting for you? Um, that's a great question. I mean, so part of the <laughs> part of the answer to that question is one I can't directly answer in that we are about to release um, a number of endpoints. Um, we're in betas with commercial partners over with, with some of these. I, and for that reason, I, I can't be specific. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also going to be a good sort of like, you know, learning phase about like whether these things are commercially ready. We're strong, strongly believing that they are. Um, but the main, the, the main answer to your question based on publicly available information is simply chat GPT was like, I think a big inflection point. It was the point where, you know, people realized outside of, um, outside of NLP, outside of people working with transformers, that this stuff could be actually practically useful. And so many companies and so many developers are now trying to build next the next stage of like derivative products. And I mean that in a flattering way, like trying to add value, trying to, you know, meet users and meet customers with the technology on top of ChatGPT, sometimes in opposition with the actual sort of API uh, <laughs> the constraints that, that ChatGPT offers. Um, so I think there's been a click since the end of December that like the markets are ready for this, that, that there is going to be a sort of tide of companies that want to use this technology. And it's obviously dangerous for innovation and dangerous for platform risk for these individual companies for there to be just one player in this space offering this class of technology. So we're very bullish on our ability to um, not just sort of offer similar capabilities to ChatGPT in a very short time frame, but uh, differentiate ourselves further and offer value in different places, perhaps, than where our friends of OpenAI are focusing today. I think this might be a good place for us to pivot towards some closing thoughts, just in terms of the broad experience you've had in the field, working at a lot of different places, your thoughts on the state of NLP, some things about the field more broadly. But where I want to start, actually, is an interesting reply you gave to the stochastic parrot argument. Um, And in particular, I I noticed that it sounds like you're an illusionist. So you noted the the Dennett view of consciousness as a linguistic fiction. And I'd, I'd love to hear you just elaborate a little bit on 
um, perhaps the reply itself, but then also your reasons for being an illusionist. So, uh, as in why I don't believe in consciousness? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I would say I'm like agnostic about the notion of consciousness rather than convinced consciousness doesn't exist. But it annoys me that there's this sort of pre presumption that like, you know, humans have access to some higher, some metaphysically given notion of consciousness that um, is impossible to achieve by other means uh, or by animals or by other life forms. Like this anthropo anthropocentrism that exists that sort of snuck in by the back door in into the AI community worries me. It might be correct. It might be the correct view, but I feel like it has, it has to go, it can't go unchallenged. So I sometimes like to stir trouble on Twitter by, by, <laughs> by challenging that kind of dogma. Um, and similarly, like, again, behaviorism as a theory of my, as a philosophy of mind is, you know, full of weakness and counter arguments from like at least 30 years of philosophy of mind literature. Um, but I, I just, I just don't know why it's not plausible that we ourselves are not just good next word predictors given the context. And that's kind of where this, all this focus on pragmatics comes in is like, can we give these like transformers or whatever is going to follow them sufficient context or sufficient proxy for context that they can emulate this kind of behavior. There's nothing that fun, like, unless you're, um, you know, a dualist of some sort, unless you believe that, you know, a soul is what gives us consciousness and higher cognitive abilities, or you believe that there's some sort of religious or spiritual aspect behind this. I'm, I'm, Pretty fascinating, like a, a physicist, a physicalist, right? Uh, I, I just don't really believe in any of that. I might be wrong, but like it just seems like we're throwing away too readily in the um, argument being made by the uh, stochastic parrot crowd the possibility that this is really all that's happening with humans, right? And this is nothing like this kind of argument is nothing new. You see it too with like John Searle's Chinese room argument. You see it with a, a bunch of skeptical views about like what neural networks could and couldn't do, what like non neural computers could and couldn't do. Um, so I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I do like uh, causing a little bit of trouble by saying, well, what if you are? What if what if you're like sneaking in some really heavy assumptions here that just don't really stand up to scrutiny or at least deserve <laughs> to be brought into the conversation? Um, and in a sense, that's why I was almost taken aback that I was being accused of being a tech bro. And in fact, I feel like I was being a good a good uh, citizen of the philosophical community by saying, let's let's just examine the assumptions and let's think about like whether or not it's actually conceivable that we too are just stochastic parrots. I I think we definitely have to maintain some level of epistemic humility about all this. I mean, there's just no way we can be certain about things, and I think that's also definitely evidenced by. Um, one of my earlier guests was was Chalmers, and one of the things that he'll always say when you try to pin him down on the view of consciousness is he's like, I'm I'm pretty Bayesian about the whole thing. Like, you know, I give this credence to different views, and then of course he gives some small percentage credence to illusionism as a theory of consciousness. And it it does feel like, you know, until we have lots and lots more evidence or figure out how to give evidence for these sorts of things, like you can't completely dismiss a view like that, even if it just feels completely wild. Yes, no, exactly. And that said, David Chalmers has some pretty wild views of consciousness <laughs> himself. <laughs> I, I'll have to listen to that podcast. I didn't know you interviewed him. Is that out already? Uh, oh, yeah, that's been, uh, that was out last year at some point. I can, oh, I can send the link okay. to you. 
looking forward to it. Yeah. So I think for a set of last few questions, first, I'd love to know, you've spent a lot of time working at, you know, different research labs in industry and academia at startups. What are some lessons you've learned about doing effective research and advancing science, both, I guess, at the individual, but then also at the institutional level from that range of experience? I mean, the first, uh, I guess the first lesson I, I, I learned, uh, and I'm still learning in some senses, you just need to be good. You just need to do things, right? It's like the best way, and we're an engineering discipline, right? We like to think of ourselves as like high and mighty scientists and say this is super complex. Um, but uh, the reality is we're, we're, we're engineers. And the best way to uh, follow the scientific method in an engineering-focused discipline is formulate a good falsifiable hypothesis then build an experiment or uh, or a product, and, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. And then just just build it, see how how it performs. And that obviously doesn't excuse doing so without thinking about the ethical considerations, the impact. Those things have to factor into experiment design and are extremely important aspects. Well, I mentioned products there. It actually, connects to the second reason. I guess I, I joined Cohere, but also why I I encourage people to think about startups as a place to do science. Um, is the following argument that I'm going to start with a very shocking declaration. I don't believe, I don't, I'm not certain that transformers and scaling them is going to get us all the way to language understanding, which seems like a crazy thing to say if I work at Cohere. If anyone from Cohere is listening, please don't fire me. And the reasoning is thus. <laughs> the reason why I still work at Cohere despite that doubt is that in order to find out what's going to come next, which at Cohere we would love to do because then we'll build it, <laughs> is to figure out what is the systemic failure mode of this current trope of collect more data, build bigger transformers, train them for longer, right? It keeps on working. It keeps on working in surprising ways. People love to find gotcha moments, but it is like you can, you, can, you can scale beyond that. You can get better data, right? We, we haven't seen the end of that pathway. But so th if you want to find the failure mode, which previously we would have done by finding benchmarks and just seeing where our model is scrappy or, or sucks, now it's actually quite hard because this, the behavior we're looking at is so sophisticated that we just can't really scalably build benchmarks that test it. The best benchmark we can find is really just trying to see, can it offer extrinsic value or utility to people who use it in a practical real world context? And... That's not obviously a, a, the, the cleanest signal either. It might have failed to find you know, users because you didn't market properly or because people didn't, the market didn't exist yet. But at least when you, when you connect there, you, you, have, you have a pretty strong indication. And then when, it, when it connects and then disconnects as in it, it no longer works, that's also a very strong signal. And there are very few places in the world where you can do that, right? If like you're in DeepMind or in Google Brain or in, in maybe even OpenAI eventually, um, these are large institutions. They're lar part of larger companies or an open AI connected to a large company in some interesting way. And large companies are incentivized to be conservative, to sort of like, you know, not rock the boat because they have an established sort of like mechanism for making revenue. So the amount of steps you need to go from your idea to your model, to your proof of concept, to actually putting, putting in front of users is significant. And likewise, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which are, you know, early stage startups where, you know, you want to put things in front of users as soon as possible, but you don't necessarily have the resources to train, you know, 10 billion, 50 billion parameter transformer on the drop of a, a, a hat. 
And so Cohere and a few other places like Cohere are, are actually some of the most exciting places to do science, to test, can we build something that actually adds value, that can solve problems in a surprising way, and then learn from the failure modes, learn from the corner cases and the limitations firsthand, and then obviously be in a good position to like solve them and or build the next generation of models. There are very few places where you can have this tight loop with 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 users uh, and customers giving you feedback that is invaluable, not just to build a better product, but actually to build technology that will go beyond the current limitations. And so that's that's the second and perhaps the most important reason why I, I joined Coherent and I'm happy that I'm there. That definitely does feel like a, a best of both worlds experience. My last question for this conversation is you've had what feels like an incredibly productive career across areas you've worked. And I'd love to know if you have any advice you could give to younger people, whether that's PhD students or people not too long out of college interested in machine learning about how to develop a, a productive and interesting career themselves. Yeah, I mean, so first learn, yeah, learn, learn to be effective executors. So build things firsthand. Don't wait for other people to do it for you. Uh, the second is accept that the field is too big and moves too fast for you to know everything. And I feel this is if you read Hacker News, Reddit, if you talk to students, you know, this is a, a sort of form, a source of existential angst for people. They're like, how can I possibly catch up with everything? And I was very lucky to be working in this field or introduced to this field at a time where, as I said, there were just a few dozen people working on the subfield, right? And it felt manageable. That's no longer the case. And so you have to just begin by accepting that and just finding a way to just deal with that stream of information. And there are different ways of doing this, like finding a niche, uh, being very good at like reading through papers very effectively, just through abstracts, uh, being really quick at like formulating hypotheses, producing a, a sufficient experiment and, and publishing. Um, but ultimately this connects to my, my, my second or third point, I've lost count of how I'm enumerating, which is just find find good people to work with. This isn't a solo adventure, right? People are far too obsessed and probably for good reasons, because there's there's dividends to be paid out of being the first author on a very successful paper. But most of the work that I've seen work successfully, even if someone is the clear lead on this instance of the project or on this sub problem, are the byproduct of like a group of smart and motivated people working together, supporting each other and being able to collectively do something that just would be impossible with one or two collaborators. I mean, obviously sometimes we have papers with one or two collaborators that are very successful, but you know, like the large scale exciting project that really move the, move the dial are ones where people have learned to work together and build a network, which is important not just to deliver, but just as a source of support, as a source of um, distilled information. As I responded several times through this paper, throughout this interview, like I don't actually have that much time to read papers anymore. I do when I can, but so much of how I keep track of stuff is from talking to my students. And and this might sound exploitative now I said it out loud like that, but it's it's true. It's like I just won't be able to read the sum total of papers that they read. And if I count on surrounding myself with motivated people who are interesting and to whom I hopefully add value in the other direction and just learning from them. And that that can happen at any stage in your career from the beginning to the end. And so everyone should always try and try and make friends and, and play along well with other people. I think a number of our guests recently have spoken to this aspect of collaboration, whether it's on an individual level, the people you might want to write papers or do a project with, but then also the institutional level between 
uh, perhaps different colleges, things like that. And that really just speaks to the importance of this field, as you said, not as something that everybody is kind of in their own home doing individually isolated from everybody else. But um, I think something that really succeeds by people finding others they want to work with and and throwing around ideas. I think that's definitely um, a very good way to to do science. Actually, and I just want to pick up on that one, one point you make there so I can make a particular call out. There is a problem in our field, which is that the same universities are, collab- are producing graduates collaborating with another. And that's great for those graduates. But it's not inclusive. We want a broader sort of group of people to be able to enter this from different parts of the world that are perhaps underrepresented within our field. And so it's important that, you know, as, an, as a community, we find ways of creating more accessibility and of creating that network effect more broadly than MIT, Stanford, Oxford, et cetera, right? And and uh, so I'm going to pl- I want to plug Cohere for AI, which is our nonprofit as- associated sort of research lab led by Sarah Hooker that has this fantastic community that I encourage your listeners to check out where people who from all sorts of walks of life, retired lawyers, students, people from countries where there are no sort of established ML educational programs wanting to learn about reinforcement, learn about reinforcement, machine learning, <laughs> one thing to find that support that I talked of to ID and sort of build up confidence and build up a skill set can do so thanks to the internet. And we need more communities like that. So definitely check out uh, C4AI, uh, Cohere4AI, which is producing a fantastic contribution in that space. I'm really excited about communities like this. We actually have an episode with Sarah from pretty much right when C4AI got started. And I think it's definitely come a long way since then. So um, I'm definitely very happy to continue plugging that for people who might be interested and getting more involved in this. I think this is a great place to close. So, Ed, I really want to thank you for your time today. It was um, an honor to speak to you. And I have, um, I'm i a really huge fan of your work. And so I appreciate you being so generous to um, come on and chat with me today. Well, Daniel, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to like listening to more of your podcast. Now I've had the pleasure of being on one. <laughs> And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.